people or homeless holding space for them because they are in pain. They are dealing with a lot. And sometimes that lifts a burden to just be like, I see you, like you've come so far and acknowledge that and honor that. But you have to see the person too. And you have to see what they've gone through. It's an understanding. I think it's a true understanding of someone because I can look at someone and tell the pain that they've endured. I can tell if they're surviving, if it's current. Mm-hmm. It's just an energy. And I and I hold space like that because I think it's energetic work. I think it's it's really sitting with their their spirit. You're listening to the Almost 30 podcast hosted by Krista Williams and Lindsay Simsek. Almost 30 started as a conversation about the transition from our 20s to our 30s. But then we realized life is full of transitions. So we expanded our mission. We are an intuition-led, wellness-focused lifestyle podcast that promises to deliver authentic conversations, diverse points of view, and insights rooted in optimism, growth, and intention. The Almost 30 Nation community is a group of purposeful dreamers who are smart, passionate, and always seeking the full potential in every aspect of their lives. At Almost 30, we're making magic together. We dream it, and then we do it. Thanks so much for tuning into the Almost 30 podcast. Here we go. Hello. Greetings. What's up, Almost 30 Nation? How are you? How are you all? Checking in. So glad to see you, Lindsay. <laughs> and so <laughs> glad to see you guys. I've missed you. I'm looking forward to seeing you all on tour. Mm-hmm. It's going to be amazing. You know who you saw the other day? Justice League at at Bodega. I saw Justice League. I was out of town for literally one day and all my people We're ended hanging. up working together <laughs> at a coffee shop. I was sitting there and it was funny because <laughs> I was doing work and then someone came up and like started touching my computer and I was just like, I literally didn't flinch. I was like, <laughs> you know, like as, and he goes, whoa, dude, you didn't, you didn't react the right way. Like you should have been like, <laughs> he said he walked up. He literally told me he was like, he walked up behind you and started deleting something on your computer. And, and he was like, you should delete this. And you didn't flinch at all. And he's like, wow, I did not expect that. And you were like, Hey man, I'm trying to get a boyfriend. <laughs> You're like, I'm trying to get a boyfriend. What am I going to do? Yo, If I'm at bodega working, you know, I'm trying to get a hundred percent. There's some hotties at bodega. It's a good spot for it. Bodega. Yeah, there's, yeah. Rose, Rose Cafe, Cafe is a good one. Mm. I don't know real, actually, no one. Yeah, the other day when our new intern, Kat, mm-hmm. was here. What's up, Kat? What's up, Kat? She was talking, she's like, what's their places to go? And I was just literally reciting places that I've seen on like uh, Vanderpump Rules. Yeah. She's like, what are cool places? I was like, Warwick's, like, to- <laughs> I was like, Warwick's dope. <laughs> <laughs> the Abbey's awesome. I know, the Abbey's sick. <laughs> gotta go on Tuesdays. Definitely gotta go to pump. Yeah, honestly. I was like, hit up my man Frownsy and see if you can get in early. Fuck. But really, I'm like, hey, just go to fucking... <laughs> I mean, club Erwan. I know, haven't been out in 14 years. I do, I do want to have a little club moment, though. I've been saying that. I, I kind of want to have a moment with it. I'm down. We should actually, we should, we should maybe plan like a club night where we have off for most of the day and like prepare to go out so we're 100%. rested. <laughs> Sounds like the beginning of like a movie yeah. where it's like five girls, like, and we're all in different jobs and we're like, we need a night out. And we like call each other on the phone. We're like, let's do this. And one of the girls gets a babysitter and the other girl like takes off work. The other girl has like yeah. a boyfriend who's a piece of shit who's cheating on her and they all know it. Like 
We need, we do need to do that though. Like standing on leather couches, puncturing it with heels yes. and just dancing. Yes. And just curating a group. That do would boys just... know that we're getting on couches and tables to get away from you? <laughs> I, I hope you all are very aware that we literally are trying our best to go as high as we can to get the fuck away from you. <laughs> like, honestly, I would be like on band. Like I would be as far, I'm like, I need a table. I need a couch. I need a, a stand. I need a platform. I need a stage to get away from you. So you don't touch me. It's actually, it's, it's an interesting position to be in because yeah, you're getting away from them, but then you're also like the center of attention because yeah. you're just at the highest point and like you're expected to like dance. Perform. I'm like, oh man, I just want to have a conversation. Honestly. Uh, <laughs> one time I was like 16 and I used my fake 18 ID. I went to this club that I don't think, I think got shut down called Red Cheetah. Oh, wow. Is that in a Ohio? strip club? Uh, pretty much. I was literally 16. I think I was faking to be 18 and I was... Just got off my shift at Outback Steakhouse. You know how I do. <laughs> I was a hostess and we were drinking like Raz or something. And my I was wearing like a sticky bra, the goo ones. And my bra fell, my thing fell when I was like on the stage. And I took my two sticky bras, one in each hand and just stuffed them in my back pocket. Your pocket. <laughs> Keep on going. Keep on going. I couldn't stop. I couldn't stop yeah. the rhythm. But also I was kind of predicting the future where they have those like booty pop underwear. Oh yeah. So took curves out one place, put them in another. <laughs> I was in line at the grocery store the other day and the person in front of me allegedly had butt implants. And I was just like, pick, I'm like, what if I like, do you know what I mean? I was just like really letting my imagination go. Like, what if I got butt implants? Like, what would that feel like? What would I walk different? Like what I just, I don't I know. know. What it'd be like to sit on it. Because you're sitting totally. on two like, Ow. it's silicone, I think. Yeah. Uh, or I think the ass shots or something. But yeah, you basically be sitting on it and be kind of like fun. Like think about like totally. gyrating like around your your spine when you're sitting on two silicone butt pads. I'd be afraid they would move. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That'd be so fun. Though. <laughs> you just like wiggle around and like it's kind of like gooey underneath you. Holy moly. For my club day, like being a, a bottle girl, it, it was, it was such a, cause you could be in it, but not be like the losers that were real, like dancing on the table yeah. by losers. I mean, like my friends, like dancing <laughs> on the tables, buying bottles, like, but it was interesting to observe it because it was such a, it's an iconic thing. And I don't know if it'll be around forever. I think it's kind of done, but I'm not sure. I, is that wave over? Let I don't me know. know. I mean, let's go to Orlando and ask them. That's Do you know the, what I mean? Like places jam. where it's like just a step behind of like the social scene. That's not shade Orlando, by the way, anyone. It's more just like there are cities that are a little bit behind. Or they're still into that. Like when we go to Miami, I wonder if it's going to be still party-ish. Totally. I bet. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Even at this one club in Chicago, I remember one time, someone was like throwing what we first thought when we were looking in the air, we're like, oh fuck yeah, money's coming down. It was like napkins. I was like, okay, <laughs> here we are. It was such a fire hazard, everything. Everything. Like and fucking slipping, sparklers. You're, sliding, you're wet. Yeah, the sparklers. The sparklers were so bad, like breathing in that shit. Like <laughs> it was so bad. It was just so, so bad. Anyway, let's Dude. do a club night. Yeah, honestly. Well, it's funny when I was- Who's going to pay for it? When I was, yeah. (laughs) Who's going to buy our table? I'm serious. Who's going to pay for our table? I could never imagine buying a fucking 800 bottle of vodka. When we were in New York, Justin's friends, like it would be like, they'd just buy a table. I'm like, what? For like 15, you know, it's like so, whatever. 
And then we'd all just stand there and like look at each other. Um, <laughs> when I was in Aspen, I think we were kind of going to go out one night, but on the Saturday night, we saw John Mayer mm-hmm. in, uh, in Aspen and he was on stage and it was like the beginning of the show. First of all, I'm so annoyed because I got a press pass mm-hmm. and I didn't know that with the press pass at Jazz Aspen that I could have gone like basically underneath the stage. What the hell? I know. You know so that? I had my press pass and I got in. I'm like, yeah, I think with the press pass, you can do something special, but I'm not sure. And I was too busy with my friends. I was like, I don't really even know. So I, but I realized at the very end, I'm like, I literally could have been right underneath the stage where all the photographers, videographers, like anyone that's staffed with the team is. <laughs> so I the didn't hell? even end up like using it, which was so lame and so mean, but I only had my iPhone. Like what are they gonna do? It's like everyone I mean... with like $8 billion phones and then me with my piece of shit iPhone. But this girl at the beginning of the set threw a bra on stage to John, of course. And he was like, you know, me back in the day, I would have thought, wow, this is really cool to see a bra on stage. But me being the man I am now and being conscientious, I think there's a woman out there with no support. (laughs) (laughs) And who who is going to support this woman? And it was so freaking funny and true. So smart, it kills me. I know, so I smart, it kills me. I love him. He sounds better live than probably, I, oh. th- I think the best live of anyone maybe I've ever seen. Yeah. Probably. Easy. And he's like the best guitarist of fucking best all time. guitarist. And it's funny too, because now that I'm older and I'm not doing drugs all the time at concerts, I'm, I love when they talk. Yes. Back in the day, you'd be like, stop talking, drop the bass. Yeah. And now it's like when they tell a story, I'm like, ooh, tell me more story about that. Time. Tell yeah. me more about the impetus behind the song. And he's so good at that. Yes. Yeah, he's so good at that. Mm-hmm. He made a good point though, too, that I think about whenever we're at, you know, speaking at events or whatever. He's like, you know, festivals are weird because you don't know if people are there for you or not. I'm like, dude, that's literally the story of my life everywhere oh my I go. God. I'm like, I don't know if you're here for me or Yo. you or uh, this person. You know what I mean? I was like, I'm glad that you feel that way. Totally. I think everyone so, at some point feels that way. When I saw him at that really small venue, it was like 200 people, maybe. We had to give our phones. And like, it just, he he wanted to create that container where he could talk to us. Oh, I love and that. And really honestly and like vulnerably, like he was like sharing about like relationship stuff. But he's like, see guys, like, I can't, sh- I, I wouldn't be able to share this if you had your phones out because like I'd risk it going on YouTube and like whatever. He's like, isn't this nice that we can just talk mm. and be together? I was like, uh-huh. I know. Fucking love you. Yeah, we're going to see him for my birthday. On this- Saturday. Yeah. This- we're going to meet him. It'll be my, my third time when I was younger. What do you mean? Did I tell you about that? What? When I was in Cincinnati, I would always go to Riverbend with my friends and we'd always somehow get- Backstage with Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we got to go meet John one year. I was like probably 17 or 18. And I was with my friend. And what they did at that time, which I don't think they do now because now they have Instagram, was like they had people from their team go around and look for girls. And so they get, they're like, hey, to me and my friend, they're like, are you 21? And I was like, yeah, I probably <laughs> just got my braces off, honestly. Totally. I was like, yeah. And I had been... I had been trained to do that since I was fucking 13. So Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, of course I'm 21. (laughs) 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> 21 rocks. And um, so we get backstage where there's like, everyone's there and we're 21. And me and my friend are holding Corona lights and we're literally holding them like they're dynamite. It is like 14 inches away from our body, like crisp, crisped out. It's like- Not cool. Not cool. Hasn't been drank at all. I don't, I think- You lime, don't know how to do the lime. The lime's still in the top probably. <laughs> I hadn't even, I didn't know what to do. The lime is preventing me from doing it. I'm probably <laughs> drinking it with the lime still at the very top. And John walks up to us and he's like, um, he's like, <laughs> he's like, you guys aren't 21. <laughs> Dude. Not what I expected. I'm like, he knows. Uh, oh, he knows hundred percent. And I was like, yeah, we're 21. <laughs> he's like, no, you're not. And I was like, yeah, we are, dude. And he's like, what was the first CD you ever bought? And I was like, <laughs> and, I, and I was a, I was, I was a seasoned liar at that point. So I'm, I'm thinking in my brain, I'm like, okay, what the math? I'm doing all the math. I'm like, what is that? And I'm trying to think. And my friend was not, she was not a good liar. Wow. She's very pure. So she said like fucking three LW or something. Like she said, honestly, she's like, sync. I'm like, oh, you're screwing us. <laughs> like you're literally ruining this for us. And he was like, okay, well then now what's your, the first movie you ever saw? And he was going through all these things to prove to us that we were not 21. Damn. Losers. That was old John too. That was old John. Cause he was, he's like, can I move in? Honestly. <laughs> can I not? I know, honestly. Yeah, that was the old him. Mm-hmm. And then the next time was the next time he was there I was with another friend and we went backstage. And this is kind of weird because there was a bunch of, this is what all artists do, but I don't think he does this anymore, but he was really young, but there was a bunch of girls back there. Yeah. It's almost like a buffet of girls. <laughs> and I think I had just, I think I, I'm not kidding. I think I maybe had braces. I think I had braces, braces then. Wow. I don't know. I, maybe it was my friend was hot and I just was with her, but I don't know if I would have gotten back there with braces. But. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we did that with like third eye blind. Holy we, moly. We met, went back there. They were kind of wild. Ryan Cabrera, when he was hot, I'm trying to think of who else, 311. Like, yo, like oh. hilarious Cincinnati people. TBT. TBT. That's hot. insane. I know. It's actually hilarious. It was, it's fun to see when I went to see the Backstreet Boys, just them, <laughs> them just fucking like having a boner about being on tour. Like oh. John's different, like John's solo, John's whatever, but like, being in a boy band again and fucking like doing the moves and like cr- crotch grabs and like, oh no, oh, oh no, <laughs> crotch grabs. Oh wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yes. you just saw them like lose themselves in a good way because it was hilarious. But I was just like, whoa, like, okay. Like they had just missed it. So, you know, all of them oh, had kids. It was like, imagine feeling that in your it. body like that, like back at it with the Boys. Yeah. On tour. Are they on tour or are they just in Vegas? Oh yeah. World so they were in Vegas for like two years. Wow. And then they went on a world tour. I mean, think about it. It's exhausting. It's crazy. But it's only, you know, for X amount of years. And you're good for the rest of your life, yeah. actually. I for the know. most part. Yeah, I don't know how long, but yeah. Meaning like you just make a lot of fucking money. Sell that merch, baby. Sell that merch. Sell like that tickets. merchy merch. It's crazy. <laughs> anyway. And here we are doing we our are. events, <laughs> making nothing, <laughs> doing our events out of charity. <laughs> oh fuck! Yeah, we should incorporate some crotch grabs on our tour. Yeah, maybe that's what we're missing. Yeah, just a moment where it's like lights out, fog on. Yeah, <laughs> look up, yeah. point up, projection of like a Thrust. woman, a woman's leg with a. Uh, fishnets on. Yes. Boom. Okay. Uh, and then almost there. Yeah. 
Okay, cool. <laughs> well, so that's what's up. That is what's up. I was just going to comment on like when we talk in the beginning and how like... Yes. Yeah. So some people like it. Some people hate it. And some people want us to get to the interview sooner. And some people want us to just talk us the whole time. And we feel like we have a pretty good balance. So if you just want to speed through when we talk, you can do that. And yeah, and if you don't, dick. you don't. <laughs> and also suck my dick. This is what, and, and this is more to just empower kidding. you just all. Kidding. You don't owe anyone anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can do whatever the fuck you want. So our show might change and evolve as it has from the beginning. So, you know, peace and love to anyone who has said anything negative. It is what it is. But yeah, you can do whatever you want when you listen to something. You can speed through, you can slow it down, you can go back. So one, thank you for listening. I just wanted to kind of empower you to listen how you would like to, to listen. Um, it. All right. That is the truth. On today's podcast, really excited. This was an interview that we did recently that I just, I'm sure you felt the same. It was just so impactful. And I was like, wow, like the fact that we have the opportunity to, to put someone up in this way, meaning like just give them the opportunity to share more about what they're doing. And that alone will just make such an impact. Like, It was so beautiful. Larea Gaston, founder of Lunch on Me. They provide now like 10,000 meals a month to the homeless in uh, the community of LA. And she is just doing the work. Such a beautiful soul. And yeah, I was blown away by her. I just, yeah. And I really needed this conversation and I'm really excited to share this with you. It was really deep and vulnerable. But what I found really impactful was my miseducation about homelessness, especially living in LA. We live very close to Skid Row. I used to work down the street from Skid Row. My ideas around what it meant to be homeless and the systems around that that are you know, creating this cycle where people can't get out I needed more education on and I loved, you know, how she explained everything. Mm-hmm. I loved her belief in people, her belief in the amazing beings that she's surrounded with and everything that she's doing with Lunch on Me is so powerful. Lunch on Me brings nutritious and organic meals to people on Skid Row six days a week, every week. It reaches more than 10,000 people a month and they redistribute organic food that would otherwise be wasted in order to create delicious and quality meals. So she actually brings amazing things like yoga, community, food, classes and courses on self-love to these people that really, really need it. Yeah, and... Just finding out that like food is the number one material sent to landfills. We do not eat 30 to 40% of our food supply. It goes uneaten. And just the fact that there's over 51,000 unsheltered people living in LA County and homelessness has increased over the last six years by 75%, which is just insane. So yeah, there are ways that you can get involved. Uh, So go to lunchonme.org and uh, she's going to speak to more of those opportunities in the episode. And I'm, I'm just so thankful, Larea. Thank you for coming on and being so vulnerable. You know, it is um, an emotional episode as well. And, you know, she was born, she was like anointed to do this work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like mother Teresa. It's wild. That story is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And in this one, it's just as deep, it's emotional. It's just really important that we understand the world in which we live. And, you know, it's really nice that 
we're so safe and we're so lucky that we can listen to this podcast, get educated, take action, and that we're lucky enough to have a phone, have access to this information. And for most of us, we're just going to continue on living our lives in the way that we lived it. But please take this as a second to um, increase compassion for others, to learn more about where we live and the people that are you know, having this human experience along with us. Yeah. All right. And just a few orders of business uh, to let you know that we are going to be in New York. OOBs. Oh, yeah. We're going to be in New York tomorrow. You know, uh, we will have our live show with Nikki Glazer. Yes. Nikki's I'm so excited. Amazing. On October 3rd at 9 p.m. And then we have... Doors open at eight. Yes. So definitely get there when doors open. For sure. And then we have our event with Aaron Claire on October 4th at the Assemblage. And that is all on human design. It's going to be an incredible learning. And then on October 9th, we have Stuart Pierce joining us. He is going to bring us into his uh, work with... I mean, he's worked with Princess Diana and Hillary Clinton and uh, uh, Marianne Williamson on the voice of change and just really tapping into your true tone and how powerful that is. Yeah, voice alchemy has been a huge part of our success and something that, you know, I think we don't think about regularly. And then after New York City, we are having a beautiful divine feminine healing women's circle with sound, with movement, with delicious bites at Calamigos. So the most beautiful location, tickets are very limited. We don't have many. And that is with Josie of 11 Healing. We met her when we were in London. We did healings with her and Mm -hmm. she's incredible. So October 19th, that is a full day. Very, very special, intensive, divine feminine workshop. And then baby, we are in DC, October 29th with Heidi Stevens and then Philly with Lindsay and I doing something special. Woo! Can't wait to see y'all. My mom will be there. Yes. Tickets (laughs) are available on almost30podcast.com slash tour. They are limited. So make sure you get them very, very soon. Um, We can't wait to see you. We are grateful for your support and for being with us as a part of this process. Join the secret Facebook group. We are having conversations all the time. Have your voice heard. Join the community there. And I love you. I'll see you soon. Love you. Bye. Bye like in the space that you're in now, you know, like it, I just feel like there's so much work to be done. And it's like, where do you start? Like, did you have someone that you look to that you're like, wow, I really, that inspires me to do this work? Or was this just something that like was innate in you? Well, I think that my role model growing up was Mother Teresa, (laughs) like as a child. Like, I don't know why, I didn't know why I liked her. Like, I was just something about her. Like when the day she died, I was in third grade and I did not go to school that day. And I always remember that moment where I told my mom, like, I can't. It was the same day that Princess Diana died. I didn't feel oh, anything. Both of them died on the same day. Yeah. yeah. Mother Teresa. I remember it because I, I remember was that vividly too. grade. And I didn't go to school because I was like, I need a moment. <laughs> like, Mother Teresa just died. And I did not understand why I was so drawn to her. And now I'm like, yeah, it kind of makes sense because of like- I mean, it perfect sense. 100%. <laughs> no, Jesus Christ. But I didn't look at it that way. I just knew like I really like, I would read her quotes. Everything she would say, I just, I felt so deeply, but did not understand it. Mm. I wasn't feeding homeless people in third grade. I started at 14, but I, that if I have to think of one person outside of my grandmother that helped to raise me, those are the only two people I really like looked up to that I actually felt like- I just felt their presence. I think it was more of an energy thing than mm. than anything. I think that I resonated with them mm. the most. Well, it'd be cool to like look back in in just like I guess your 
like your spirit guides and your people that support you from like the ancestral realm and like the spiritual realm to see where that correlation is. Because I think that's so special. You know, when children have that connection with someone like that, it's for a reason. You know, you you chose her for a reason. She chose you for a reason. Yeah, I I wonder too, just on on another note, like I wonder what was happening astrologically during the time when they both, that's huge. I I remember Diana and I remember Prince or Mother Teresa passing, but I don't remember it happening on the same day, which freaks me out. No, same day. I remember that just because I remember- How did Mother Teresa pass? I want to say it was old Mm -hmm. age, like she just, but like, obviously like the news I felt like was focusing on Princess Diana because of like just everything that happened. happened, But I just remember when it happened, it was just like, whoa. And your mom let you stay home. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was, I remember I was uh, staying with my grandmother at the time, which my grandmother was like the only mom that I like know, like that's my, my G. And um, yeah, she let me, I just, I couldn't do it. I was like broken. I didn't even know why. I just know I would see her and I would like, read all these quotes from her and I just resonated with them. And then I would just see her feeding kids. And I just thought, I don't know. It just felt, her energy felt right to me. So I feel like if I had to pick someone, but I didn't correlate that to my life, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to grow up and be a modern day mother Teresa. That wasn't really my idea or goals. I think it just kind of- Yeah, as like a little kid. (laughs) I want to be a 2019 mother (laughs) Teresa. Thinking about, you you know, you looking at her as an example, I don't, I didn't really have- I didn't seek examples, so I didn't have them. You know, I was grew up in a small town in Ohio, but, and I guess my examples would have been like lame people, but that I would have sought out. But I wonder for now, for kids there, I don't think that there are people like Mother Teresa that are impactful in that way that they can see as like that sort of example. I wonder who, who their type of examples would be. Yeah. I also don't think it's like a mainstream thing. You actually have to seek it out. Like for someone to find what you're doing and your story, like yeah. you do have to, you do have to do like your digging and your research yeah. because what populates the news now is like trash, some bullshit. hundred mm-hmm. percent. You know, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's an interesting point. You know, like I, who would people even find? Yeah. I, I, people like you. I mean, that's why, you know, we're here today and we are so inspired by what you're doing. So when you started feeding people, the feeding the homeless when you were 14, what was that experience like? And did you seek that out or was someone like, hey, we're going to go do this. Do you want to come? No. Um, when I was 14 years old, my uncle had a restaurant and I was throwing away food and a man was outside digging in a trash can. So like that was what happened. I feel like it was a divine moment. Mm-hmm. Like I, when I look at it, I'm like, no, that seed was planted in that moment, even though when I was present in it, I just, I would always question, why do you have to throw all this food away that's perfectly good? And, you know, just being 14, not really understanding just the idea of why these rules exist, because I would challenge things if it didn't make sense, regardless. I didn't really, I wasn't really good with rules if they didn't make sense. And to me, that was always weird that food would be good and we have to throw it away. And it just happened to be one night I was by myself and a man was digging in a trash can and I offered him food. And I told him it was perfectly good. I was like, I eat this food all the time. Like, would you like some? There's nothing wrong with it. And that was the first moment where I'd met someone who was homeless. And it was a very, um, for me, it was a very spiritually shifting moment in my life because just a series of events that happened. Like I gave him food. I turned to grab a drink. I turned back around and he was gone. Angel. Yeah, he was definitely an angel. Call called Poofers. Mm-hmm. Me and Justin call him Poofers. They are there for a second and then they're gone. Yeah, I think he was there to plant that seed. And for a long time, I never told anyone that story because I thought it was just so woo-woo. I think it was too much for people, even though for me, I knew. I didn't even know he was an angel in that moment. I was just like, what just happened? I wasn't really sure. But I was like, this man just 
came, grabbed food, left. And then three years later, I'd been um, working with my uncle. Three years later, like my last day, I had seen the man going across the street with his cart. It was the same man. And I remember being like, this guy is weird. It's the one that never took my food. But from that first moment, I had been feeding people. Anytime my uncle would leave, I would like sneak food. When he found out, he was like, you can't do this. And I was like, okay, but when you leave, I'm going to continue. <laughs> so I just, I did it. And that was, that was what, I, that's how I first started uh, feeding the homeless. And I really enjoyed it. Like I had met people. I had just created great relationships when I'd had to clean. When my uncle would leave, they would come help me. It was just like this really beautiful experience. And I grew up in the church and I always tell people like, I didn't find God in the church. I found God in those experiences. That's mm-hmm. when I was like, okay, there's something higher. Before then I didn't really, it didn't resonate with me. So I told my mom, I said, like, I don't really like tithing in the church. Is it okay if I save my money and feed people? Because that's what I wanted to do. It felt right to me. Mm. And um, my mom said, I don't care what you do. Just do your part. And that's kind of where it started. So for 10 years, I fed. And it was my form of tithing. I never told anyone. It wasn't something I had planned to do as, like, my life, my career, any of that. It was very separate. Then, yeah, 10 years later, I fed with one of my first friends. And it kind of changed. Wow. Everything changed. What's tithing? Tithing is um, in just like Christian religion, if you take 10% of whatever you make and you have to give it back, it's, it's, it's said to be not yours. Like 10% of everything you have doesn't belong to you. So you're supposed to intentionally give it away. A lot of times Christians like tithe in church. So they'll give the money to the pastor to continue the church or wherever they want to put it, scholarship funds. Like it's just having the idea that everything that you have isn't all yours and it needs to be given and distributed. And I felt like that was the most valuable thing I learned in church was the fact that tithing is a discipline. And um, so for me, it was spiritual tithing. I like to give to people. And so I did it where it was like a direct experience. That's how I like to give. And that's where it started from there. I think it just became my own form of tithing. And when I realized it didn't have to be inside the church, then I felt like I was more open to just experiences outside of church because that's where it felt right to me. Even though I grew up in the church and religious, I don't feel religious at all. I feel just connected. When I think about food specifically, because you can give stuff and things and but when you take in food, I just think it's it makes me think of like comfort, of home, of nourishment, of community. So what has been your experience as you've given food and nourishment to people? You know, what, what have you seen within the homeless communities shift and change just be, by providing really good food? I think food is love. I think that's kind of the basis of most cultures. Um, whether you have a lot or a little, I think that when guests come into town, when it's family, friends, I feel like we pull out our best food. We we try to give in that way. I think it's just a cultural expression. And that's why it was so important to me to be mindful, to give the food that I eat. Like I don't serve things that I wouldn't eat because I think that I wouldn't do that to my friends and family. And I don't feel like I have to tell someone I love you all day for them to understand it. I think it comes from action. And that's why our food is as beautiful as it is because it represents how we feel about the people. And that's why I think that they see a difference. You can't fake it, especially, especially energetically. Like I feel like the most profound deep people I've met have been homeless because I feel like even to have that journey, you've been um, trusted with a lot to be able to survive that. Mm. So I feel like they feel it energetically. 
it's different. Like I, I can't help it. Like I won't do anything that love's not involved in. And I think down to our food, what it looks like, what we serve. And I think a lot, a long time people didn't understand that because they're like, oh, this is bougie. This is these things that people that now like healthy food is mainstream. So people kind of associate that with wealth. And I get why, because the price point on organic food has, you know, I mean, it's very well aligned with that. But for me, I felt like access was being able to give everyone natural foods. And it's also quality of life. People are sick and they're sick because of the food that they're given. And it's not really their choice. Yeah, there's there's so much to unpack there. And I want to I wanna definitely want to talk about food price, quality of life too. But I also want to talk about, you know, what you said about uh, sometimes the, or in your case, the homeless people that you've met have been the most profound. Mm-hmm. And I would love to to dig into that more because I think there is a lot of stigma around homeless people, around the homeless community. And so I'd just love to hear stories you have or antidotes or some of the people that have really impacted you. Well, every angel I've encountered has been homeless. And that's the truth. Like I've encountered so many angels, so many just spiritual beings that I feel like are beyond. Like I just, and it's obvious and it's apparent and it's shifting. And for me, I I noticed that. And I think it's because I'm really dealing with people soul to soul. It's not about circumstance. It's not about addiction. It's not about every stigma that comes with homelessness. These are people. They're made out of the same things as us. Like to even think that that's separate mm-hmm. is insane to me. Um, so I see people and the most profound things, I'll talk about Montgomery because Montgomery is like one of my favorite people in Skid Row. He's a prophet. And I had stayed on Skid Row for 43 days in a tent. And he was one of the first people that greeted me when I started that journey which is a whole nother thing. But what do you mean? Like you set up your tent and he came out or how was Yeah, the, he was came out. Like I had just, it was, I had actually met him for the first time on Skid Row, like the day yeah. I'd gotten there to set up my tent. And he now sleeps in our bodega at our shop. Like we have him there. And the most profound person, like had a hard time with even just our presidency and Trump and the things that have happened. Yeah. And having conversations. He was the first person that was just so enlightened. We were talking about something that Trump did and I was so hurt. And I think it was really dealing with like how the kids are being taken. Mm. And we were on Skid Row and we were bringing that up and I was just upset and enraged. And he looked at me and he said, don't be mad at that man. And I was like, at first when he said that, I'm like, what? And he was like, no, he's like, God uses everyone. He's like, let that fool wake up a nation. And when he said it to me, oh, I just got chills. I know, same. My face just got and chills. So, <laughs> and so when Let he that said, "Wake up a nation," yeah, and yeah, and when he said that to me, he he had such a forgiving spirit. Mm. I thought about, oof, it just like makes me emotional. But I thought about how many times he had gotten stepped on and he had forgiven everyone. Mm. And so like, you don't find that like people don't suffer well, mm. and so it's a different type of spirit that like embodies that type of crushing. Yeah. People don't suffer well is like, wow. It's true. It's, true. it's so true. So it's like, even with him, like he's so sweet. Like the other day, I, um, like you said, he stays there. Like we feed him all the time and all he does is give. Like he came, he's been at the bodega since we opened it. Like every day he's brought candles, he's brought flowers. He's found ways to just help us. And like, I tried to give him money the other day and he was like, I would never take money from you. And he was like, I don't, he's like, I've gone this long without and been just fine. Mm. Like just, you know, just keep hold space for me. That's mm. it. There's like a resiliency yeah. that is like so powerful. But oh, so you know, the like people looking in 
from the outside on a place like Skid Row think, well, that is weakness. That is, they are disturbed. They are lost. Yeah. They are this, that. But like, if I think about it, what they've had to overcome and still they are living yeah and and surviving it's just like the truest test of resiliency yeah. like which like makes me think about the potential there you know yeah. what i mean like yeah. because i think people just sweep it under the rug and i don't know like the kind of the workings of either how they're trying to improve and i want to get into that but just so much potential with like a population that is so resilient. So I can imagine that if you introduce them to this nourishing food, to these spiritual practices or holistic views on their life and health, that they would just be like, ah, yeah, like so ready. Oh yeah. Has that been your experience? Oh, a hundred percent. And everyone's in different spaces, right? So some people aren't receptive yet because everyone learned, you know, they're not cookie cutters. It's not all the same people, but I have seen a transformation that's very different than the average person because of what you said, their resiliency. I tell people all the time, it's like, we can't save them. They're stronger than us. And that's something that's very important to me. Like when we go out there, it's like, I'm not saving anyone. I'm holding space for people and I'm being with them. That's been the biggest thing is like, I can't save them, but I can be with them. And I can help them through it and I can, you know, be their cheerleader on the side and just someone to encourage them past their suffering. And I can also equip them with healing tools for the amount of pain that life brings to them. And so I definitely see a difference starting with the food. The food is like such a nourishment, like people don't realize how they've been living a lot of times people said to me, like, I didn't realize how low I was living or I never had, or just the fact that this food makes me feel better. We know that just from transferring from fast food to like whole foods and things like that. But to be able to introduce that to them when they're really sick because they're eating out of trash cans, like no one ever thinks about that. Like they're eating people's leftovers. They're eating just unkept foods and to be able to give them just clean, Mm. fresh, warm food they know that's love. Like, and I think that makes a difference in the world. Like everything that happens, I think when love is at the root of it, that's when things change. And they they are seeing their worth because it's being presented to them in different ways. And I think that food is one of them, our consistency and sharing, just sharing a space and, and allowing them to be seen and acknowledged. And I think that the biggest thing is we honor them. Like I am, I admire just what they've been able to endure and how they are. I mean, they teach me every day. I've only become better because of them. And that's the truth because I've been so mindful because of the things that they tell me, the profound lessons. Again, he, this man had me forgive Trump. <laughs> like mm-hmm. That's crazy yeah. to me. Um, but it was, he had me think higher. Um, he had me understand things from the bigger picture and not just the moment. And I think that that is something to be learned from. We can learn so much. And that's, oh, they're my favorite. Yeah, I like keep, I keep trying to remember all the questions I'm wanting to ask when you're talking. But the first is related to to their ability to to speak directly to the truth, like with Montgomery in that situation. Do you think that is attributed to the fact that they're stripped of all of like, the bullshit that I think people with stuff, with houses, with jobs, with families, with kids have that they kind of create this world around them that is just perpetual bullshit. Like yes. gotta walk the dog, gotta do all these things. Yes. And without that, they're able to see clearly or where do you think that comes from? Well, hundred percent. I think that they're stripped of distraction. 
And I think that distraction is not understanding what life really is about. And it's like, you can't have a facade because everything you are, everything you've been through is showing on you. They don't have a choice to be transparent because their life has turned them inside out and they're exposed. I mean, down to safety, like you're exposed, you're sitting on the street every day. There's nothing you can hide from. And so I think that they have to do a truth like in the face every single day. And I think that is a gift. I think that obviously I don't want anyone to stay homeless. I think it's a moment. And I think those moments are very vital. And I think that going out of that, it's the biggest gift you can ever have because you can be stripped of things that don't matter. And you get the, you really get the gist of life and just being present and and understanding why it's so important just to exist and to be grateful to exist and survive. Like every day they're grateful that they get to wake up because of the circumstances that they're in, they're in war every day. And so I think that is a gift. And I think to be able to take that and pair it with transitioning them out of that, those are going to be the leaders of the world for sure. 43 days on Skid Row, you were saying. So I'd love to know the why behind that, kind of how that came about and then your experience and what you learned because I don't think a lot of people know exactly what it's like. I think they mm. hear kind of the the stigma of it and and don't really want to look at it, especially yeah. just like the city in general. It's like, mm, oh, Skid Row. So I, I, I'd love for you to shine a light on that experience. Well, the reason it happened um, in my meditation, it came to me that I needed to stay on Skid Row and I didn't understand why. It was right after I had lost my mom and I was broken. Like I was, I was shattered and I knew I was going into a season of shatteredness because of just how everything happened. And that was the first message that was given to me, but I didn't know why I was going there. I didn't understand it fully. I just know my message was very clear and I'd realized I'd gone there to heal, um, to be stripped of whatever else life had that kept me distracted. And it definitely shifted every part of me. Um, and I don't think there's anything that would have helped me heal from that type of heartbreak ever, but Skid Row and people who have been to those depths of pain, I felt like that's where my comfort came from. It wasn't just about me going there and sharing their stories, but I also felt like I was given such a gift because they held space for me as well and my own pain. Like I was able to release it there. So beautiful. It's crazy. Wow. For and you've said it a few times and I want to, because you do it beautifully, talk about holding space. You know, what does that mean to you? Like, what does that look like to you specifics that people can, can think about? I think acknowledging someone and hearing what they have to say without judgment. And that's what I learned because my mother held that space for me. And I think I've been able to live my truth for a very long time because she let me be who I was. And it was unconditional. I think that that's what it looks like where someone can come to you and there isn't anything they can't talk to you about. And I think that's what holding space is because if not, it just becomes these like social exchanges that aren't deep, but just being able to say like, whoever you are, all, all parts of you are welcome here. And I think that that is how you hold space is like allowing people to be who they are. And I think that that gift was given to me, which only came from, you know, a couple people, I would say like, my mother and my best friend, those are the two people who happens to be in this room, but those are only two people that have held space for me in a different way where I could be all things. So that's why I know how vital it is because being able to be that, I've been able to live in and steep in, in my truth and you get to know who you are in a different way. And I think that people are homeless holding space for them because they are in pain. They are dealing with a lot. And sometimes that lifts a burden to just be like, I see you, like you've come so far. 
and acknowledge that and honor that, but you have to see the person too, and you have to see what they've gone through. It's an understanding. I think it's a true understanding of someone because I can look at someone and tell the pain that they've endured. I can tell if they're surviving, if it's current. Mm-hmm. It's just an energy, and I and I hold space like that because I think it's energetic work. I think it's it's really sitting with their their spirit, and, and we do that often. And I've learned it's not in a brick and mortar. It's not in a space. It's literally it's it's between people. Have you seen a shift in how they interact with each other because you've been able to hold space? Yeah, that's probably one of the most beautiful things I had seen was the the family dynamic we built with everyone because we we set the tone for how love is going to be in our space. And I think that when they go through things and even just like family, when they argue and they're upset, we intervene and we tell them not here because we all love each other and we remind them. I think it's, it's a reminder. It's not a reprimanding. It's a reminder that no, we're here to love each other and let us enjoy like these moments. And yes, I've intervened some crazy things, but there was a moment that's very extreme where I had two people who were in extreme different traumatic experiences. Um, One woman who was almost killed um, from gang initiation. She had been like, like it was really bad. She had gone through a lot. And so yelling triggered her. And then a, a guy had been stabbed and knives triggered him and she was holding a knife and he was yelling. And so they were triggering each other. And there was a moment where I went between them because they were ready to hurt each other. And um, I had stopped them and I had spoken to both of them and I had put the guy in timeout and I had held the woman. And after that, two days later, they were in the kitchen cooking together and I'd realized like we had intervened and shown them their pain and then that was okay. We acknowledge like your pain is completely real and relevant, but let's navigate through it. Let's work in a different way to address it. And I think it's that it's creating new ideas, not reprimanding people for their ways because that's what, that's all they know. It's survival. It's understanding that, but saying there's 20 ways we can handle the same thing. Let's find one with grace and we let's find one that matches your energy and the love that you have in you. And for them, it was forgiving each other and their pain and being able to work together and also finding their pain as a, as a point to, to see each other and empathize with one another, to show them that they were both hurting. And it wasn't about rage. Rage is the top, is the surface of deep rooted pain that's not addressed. And those are the things that we talk about and those are the spaces that we hold and we redirect it through love. And I think it comes with acceptance of people being who they are and wherever they are. Like there's levels to everyone's coming from different spaces, but all spaces are welcome. So how are they taught this? This I understand and I, how are they taught the skills, I guess, without you? Because a lot of what you do is the understanding of both triggers mm-hmm. and both traumas and then the negotiation of that and then the communication that's created between that. I guess, how would they, how do you teach them the skills to do that on their own outside of your environment? Well, it's just like how we've learned things. You start with showing someone an idea and they apply it. It's all about, you, you can't apply something you've never been introduced to. Mm-hmm. So it's an introductory. It's saying, hey, this is a new way to do things. So a lot of times, I mean, even with Michael, I put him in timeout all the time. He was like, he's really bad. But <laughs> I told him like when he would be upset, just count to 10. And he had said to me, no one's ever said that to me. Wow. And mm. it's because he was a foster kid. Like he had just never got adopted yeah. and he went straight to Joe at 18, been in and out of Joe his whole life, never had a family. So no one's ever been attentive enough. I mean, he's illiterate. He doesn't even know how to read. That shows you the amount of neglect mm. that happens to, to oh. kids. 
where it's like you've gone your entire life where no one even made sure you could read. So that just shows me neglect and showing him something that small, introducing that. It's not even about just the introductory. It's the love that's put in because we're giving time to them. We're taking time to help them iron that out. And all those things they recognize because they know what love isn't. So anytime it's there, it's magnified. Wow. Could you give us some statistics on foster care system, homelessness, uh, Skid Row, just to kind of give people um, an idea of what, you know, you're working with and and sometimes against. Yes. So there's 28,000 foster kids in LA. Only 1,400 are awaiting adoption out of 28,000. And 50% of foster kids become homeless within six months of turning 18 at 50%. So 14,000 kids in LA will be either homeless or incarcerated. And that's just if they survive. Mm. Um, So that's our biggest, one of our biggest issues is foster care. Kids aren't being adopted and there aren't, the government's not doing it. There aren't programs that are equipping kids to survive on their own without family. Like no one ever looks at that because a foster kid unadopted is a homeless child. Period. They have no family, no source of like belonging, nothing. It's like you're basically telling a kid, I hope you figure it out by high school because you're on your own at 18. And that's it. There's no like soft transitions. There, there is an education. It's like their education is coming from school. And we know what that looks like. Like that's not where our our basic like skills come from. Yeah. You know, like they they might learn addition and subtraction. They're not gonna learn how to open a bank account. Mm-hmm. They're not gonna learn how to pay rent. They're not gonna learn how to write a resume. Right. They're not given any life skills to survive. And that's why we see this a lot of times. People always say, like, that's an adult. It's like actually he's been homeless for 20 years because he's been on the street since he was 18 and had no way out. So it's like a lot of things that people don't think about that our kids are. So that's these homeless senior citizens were kids that never had family. And that's our biggest issue. Like if we don't create more programs that are centered around teaching kids and empowering them and also creating groups that give them identity, because that's going to be a huge problem as well. If you don't have something to reach for, something to have pride in, like that affects is that where they go to gangs? Like, well, yeah, because yeah. it's a family. Like, yep. I mean, a gang is a family. It's a yep. group of people that you identify with. And so it's like just to feel like a sense of belonging. Yeah. And that's all it's about. It's mm-hmm. like what a child would do just to belong. Like, sure. and they're preyed on, you know? And that's like the hard part. Are there kids on Skid Row? Yeah. What? what? Kids, kids went up. I don't have the statistic for this year because they did the count in July. Um, the last one for this year, um, kids went up 64%. Wow. So we have more like homeless kids than adults, but it's because, I mean, all the kids in the system are homeless. Like adults, a lot of times are coming from rent control. Like two to 3,000 people are becoming homeless every year. It's like other things. And you have rent control with senior citizens. They're on fixed incomes and their rent goes up. And they've been budgeting for the last 10 years, the same amount of money. They don't have 500 more dollars for the month. So it's like a lot of things that we don't think about that affects everything. And a lot of it is just greed. Like this would not happen if people, if there wasn't greed, this would Mm -hmm. not happen if more people cared. You know, this is a result of the lack of care. Like you can't tell me people care when the conditions are this Mm -hmm. way. It's crazy too, because it's like you look in it and, And which part of the system, you know, it's like, okay, so we have foster care, which is the beginning. Mm -hmm. We have the school system, which is the middle, which doesn't prepare them. We have the senior or we have the housing situation for when they're out. 
if they're on rent control or not. And I think rent control, you have to have certain stipulations, correct? Rent control can... For like an application and... You're saying for someone... Oh, sorry, for like um, like supported housing. Yeah, but even that, I mean, even that's different because you still have to be chronically homeless. So they'll make you homeless two, three years. And if you're a kid, you're a least priority. So you'll be homeless three, four years before getting a space because if a senior citizen's going to die, they're yeah. going to throw them in a space. You know what I mean? It's just like every system has felt them. There is no system that was created that isn't broken, but it's not broken in the sense of it's functioning the way it was designed to function. Yeah. Like the system is, is functioning because this is how they wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. It would be different if they wanted it to be different, but this is how they want it to be. So it's not even just the system has felt them. It just requires people to be more mindful and conscious with how they're distributing whatever they have, because this is something that can be fixed with wealth and that's it. Like, it's not that deep. It's not that hard. It's just people are unwilling to help. I know. That was the thing with the the Amazon and what the fires that were happening recently. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about how when um, Notre Dame and Paris was burning and how there was a billion dollars raised in the yeah. course of days. And I'm like, and we can't raise a significant amount of money or do enough for the Amazon. And in this case too, like there are yachts that harbor in LA and Marina Del Rey that could pay for and fix so much of a lot of the the systems that are broken within this country and, and the desperation of wealth and like how it's distributed is just becoming like gross in yeah. the way that it is structured. Yeah. I mean, just everything that's happening isn't sustainable. Yes. Financially, energetically, it's just not sustainable. Yep. So I mean, it doesn't look good if people don't wake up. Like within this the system, and I guess it's partly like the governmental system, like what is stopping them from helping? You know, like- They don't want to help. The government doesn't, the government, the government didn't want women to vote. Yeah, I mean- So I, I mean, I if know. you want to just go into like the things that the government didn't yeah. want us to have, civil yeah. rights, like yeah. everything that's happened has been a community stand. Yeah. Like- all those things yeah. didn't happen through government. Nothing the government's ever done. So I think if we start to understand the structure and blueprint of the government, our country wasn't founded on morals. Mm-hmm. And so to think mm-hmm. it was is delusional. Mm-hmm. Like the government, it's not that they're why they want help. They don't want to help. They want people to die and suffer mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, whether we do well or good, they still make money. Yeah, It doesn't matter. So that's why it's so important that people are mindful enough to help because there's power in numbers. Like I always think about the Million Man March. It's like, how'd you guys do that without internet and cell phones? Like that was an operation. Like I'm so inspired by that because they showed the amount of unity that can happen when people put their priorities in the right places. Can you talk a little bit about that? So our audience Oh, just, I mean, civil rights period. Like the reason we even have public education, the reason we have free school lunches is because of civil rights, the Black Panther movement. The things that I do is very in support of that because they were able to protect people. They were able to get Asians out of conservation camps in California. Like a lot of stuff happened. They were fighting for everyone to have just rights period. So that's to me, my stance on things is distributing so that everyone has, like, I'm not saying everyone's going to be rich. We understand there's tears, but poverty and wealth in the same place is corruption. And that's obvious. And for California to have people living in third world country conditions and then have vacant mansions and vacant spaces 
and no one cares and no one's outraged. Like to me, I just feel like if we don't do something, like I, what if Mother Nature gets upset? Like I don't want an earthquake to happen, but it feels like energetically, if we keep letting these things happen, things will cancel out themselves. So we should probably volunteer to do right. And so I, it's hard. It's hard to be in LA to see the wealth in Hollywood and to see that type of poverty. Yeah. It's disgusting. It's, I mean, it's, it's hard. And I just think people need to do more. The problem is they are given so many windows to do and they do nothing and they cry about the numbers, but they don't even do their part. How have you been able to grow lunch on me to 10,000 meals a month, despite all of the things that could be working against you? I, well, I think for me is because I focus on solutions. I don't think about the problems because talking about the problems, they're written down, they're documented, they're archived. Like we don't need to look at the problem. We need to look at our part in it individually. And my part was, I have enough to be able to help. It doesn't make sense. As busy as all of our schedules are, I prioritize what's important to me. So I think everything that grows is a reflection of what's important to me. And that's why it's grown because I've, I decided to shift into putting more time and energy into things that matter. And it's been able to help people. It's been able to save lives. It's been able to redirect waste. It's been able to shift consciousness. Like those things are so important to me. If I'm not doing that, why am I here? And that's just how I see life as a whole. If I'm not helping and I have resources, why am I here to hoard and take up space? Like, why am I here? And I think I ask myself that a lot. And I answer that with, through my work. Wow. You too. Wow. I'm just pondering a lot about what you're saying. The piece I wanted to talk about to just back to your story of going, living on Skid Row. And I wanted to kind of discuss mental illness, drug use, all of that kind of stuff, because mm -hmm. the foster care system is an interesting piece that plays along with that. And I mm -hmm. think I want to break stigmas in those spaces or explain more so people understand how mental illness and drugs play within that area? Well, only 10% of homeless use drugs. So yeah. I feel like one of the biggest things we have to talk about is the fact that we can't create a problem on such a small amount. Like I think majority rules. And I think that people, because they are ignorant to what mental health looks like, to what drug use looks like, to what misdiagnosis looks like, a lot of us don't take into consideration how many people are misdiagnosed, put on medicine that redirects their brain as a whole. Like I've had kids who I've watched been given mental illness because they were given the wrong medicine mm. and have not been able to come back from it. And then have gone to street drugs after that because they're easier to manage than pharmaceuticals. So there is no difference between street drugs and prescribed, especially when you're dealing with like yeah. crystal meth is the same as anti, uh, is uh, it's the same medicine as um, bipolar medicine. I've had my kids literally on the same ones and be more manageable with crystal meth than their um, their bipolar medicine. Wow. And so I think that looking into that, it's funny because I think everything comes full circle. When I was younger, I used to read a lot about specifically pharmaceutical and medicine and how it was so tightly related to street drugs. Yeah. And now being in it, I'm seeing it. And it's the crazy part is, is like, I'm sitting with kids that are heroin addicts. I'm sitting with kids that are going into these spaces. And honestly, what they're prescribed is worse than the street drugs. And that's the truth. Like I've watched my kids just die. Like I've watched my kids lose them completely. You know, they give them 
they give them drugs and all of a sudden they're hearing voices and they weren't hearing voices before. Mm-hmm. And I've had them for two and three years. So it's like, you can't tell me who my kids were when you prescribed them once. So Who's prescribing them, I guess, where are they getting the medication? Gover- government funded yeah. organizations. Which is very so interesting. Disturbing. But also we don't think about too, when new medicine comes out, they target foster kids and homeless. So every time medicine comes out, they go and recruit on Skid Row. Like vans go out and people are taken and they're paid like $500 a week to take medicine that they don't know what they're taking. But if you're homeless and you don't have anything, $500 looks like a lot lot of money. Oh, sure. So people all the time are also, no one ever thinks about the mental health, but they never think about, whereas the drugs aren't just tested on lab rats. Like who else is it tested on? And it's a lot of times our, our people. That I've had I've kids never heard that where before. I haven't seen for a week. And I'm like, where are you? They're like, oh, they're doing this new study. So they took us and locked us in this room for a week. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's like a real thing. Like it's something that I'm not afraid to talk about because it really happens like all the time, all the time. So this mental health, like people think like someone just walking into middle street, that's not just street drugs. Like hundred. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, if you're on heroin, you're falling asleep in a corner. You're not walking in traffic. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's just even knowing that, just being like they are preyed on. They are preyed Yo. on. Mm. That's the that's the thing is I knew with the drugs that it wasn't the full story. And I think people have this assumption within that. And that just makes so much sense to me. Yeah. This is not normal. The amount of like, even me doing this work the last couple of years, the amount of mentally ill people they are now, like they go to the hospital and they come back hearing voices and doing stuff that was not happening before. Like wow. it's worse now. And I just think it's because they're not going to end homelessness. People are either going to go to jails or mental hospitals. They just want to get it out of sight. Yeah. So that's a whole nother thing. I know you've had like um, experience with the media because of mm-hmm. what you're doing. And it's yeah. something that, you know, I'm glad is being highlighted. Um, but like, has your experience with the media been kind of two-sided? Like, I'm just curious because I think they, like for us not to know that they're, they're testing like these drugs on people on Skid Row, like is wild to me. And I know the media kind of controls the information that's being disseminated and they're being influenced by the government and by whoever. So like, what has your experience been with that? And does it ever scare you? And does it ever make you feel hopeless? No, I think that no. Okay. And I only, the only reason why is because I feel like if you steep yourself in anything and you get involved, then it doesn't matter what you're reading about. The problem is like, we don't totally. need to be reading. We need to be proactive. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like when civil rights was happening, they weren't showing the things they were doing, but everyone knew in the community. So I think it's just more of like, when people are getting their information from there, they're far removed. And that just also supports their ignorance. Like they stay ignorant if they stay in that space. And so I think that it has to do with a lot of things I know are because of experiences. And being there, I wouldn't have known either. Even now doing this work, being there, so much, even having lived on Skid Row, there's like Vice Thursdays where literally detectives come out and beat up people on Skid Row. Didn't know that was happening because cops are on their best behavior when volunteers are out. But when I started to blend in and look like the community, things looked very different. Why is it called Vice? Um, they always call it that because the Vice police, they literally come, detectives come. I watch them like, right. I watch them knock a man's teeth out Oh my because, God. and laugh because they could. Like it was very, it's been 
A lot. It's been a lot to endure, but I need to see those truths. I need to see what's happening because it's no different than civil rights. Like, it's no different. It is no different. And so seeing, like, people being treated that way and seeing, like, older men look at me like, please stay here so they don't kill me. Like, look at me like, please don't leave. Just stay here because they won't kill you in front of me. You know, it gives them another day. Like, those are real things that we have to see. Like, that's real. And so... I think that it just validates how important this work is. Mm. And it's not a choice. Mm-hmm. It's not a choice. It's, it was never a choice. So I think that that is when you're faced with things that aren't a choice, you better be proactive and do what you're, so, what you're called to do. So I feel like it's, it's a calling. And I think that that's important. I'd rather be present than miss those calls and not know what's needed. But I feel like anyone that doesn't feel inclined to help people like they're ignorant they don't understand what's going on because it's people are being hurt and people's lives are being taken and homelessness is it's so scary to live in that way because i don't care who you are once you become that type of prey like you're just a sheep amongst wolves Mm -hmm. you don't have anything to protect you like and it's obvious and it's hard like for me to know that i can't turn away from that truth i know too much to like act like that's not going on. I know too much not to to talk about these things. I'm not afraid to talk about them. I'm not afraid what that comes with like at all because it's vital. It's so important. And even with the media, like I'm so blessed that Tanya, our publicist, has pushed talking about real truths and even podcasts being able to talk about things that are taken out in media. That is such a blessing. It's such a blessing to be able to do that because it allows people to at least have that switch in consciousness to be able to figure out how they can help. My thing is it's not just one way, but figuring out how you do your part. You know, anyone that doesn't, shame on them. And they'll answer to that. They'll answer to that because we're supposed to all help in some capacity. We're supposed to all, I mean, I think tithing is something we're all to do. Like, I don't think it's it's a one person. I don't think it's a religious thing. I think it's a consciousness of how do we help progress and help people and how do we honor what we've been given. Mm. And I think it's by distributing something, so a part of it. That was really beautiful. And, and on the, the broken systems piece too, and, and the police thing just reminds me of the the part race plays in all of this. And like how that relates to the system, the foster care system, the incarceration systems within schools, and then police from your perspective, like what has been, and speaking about the civil rights movement, like what has been challenging about seeing race relations play out in this space? Well, I mean, people of color have had to deal with this since the beginning. So we know, I think it's more of being mindful to not just be so used to abuse that you just accept it or you have excuses for the abusers because that's what happens a lot. That's even psychologically an abuse. That's what happens. So I think to me, it's people of color knowing how we've been done so wrong and abused and to remember, I know you're tired, but we still have to fight and it's not a choice. And I think it's fighting for what's right. It's fighting for equality. It's fighting for kids to be able to have quality of life not be thrown away. And so I think that it's not about not knowing because we know, we all deal with it. I have four brothers. I deal with it and it's painful. And I think it's more of like knowing you're human, but being treated less than and being able to have to, to fight that, but then also being told you're not allowed to be upset. 
You're not allowed to be radical. You're not allowed to show your strength that they're trying to beat out of you. And that's the truth. I see that every time I see a black man arrested that's done nothing, that's just walking by. Um, so I think it's just more of the reminder, like we can get through it and not every person is bad, but the people that aren't, if you aren't doing anything, you're the problem too. Mm. Um, I, I feel like you're also teaching people how to love and respect themselves. Mm -hmm. And I just think that is such a gift, but also something that we can all do, you know? Yeah. So I, I just love to hear from you, like how we can, how you have been trying to activate people and inspire people to kind of shift their empathy. Because I think like a lot of people's empathy is distant, mm -hmm. you know? So how, you know, how do we shift that? Well, I think that, Skid Row, homelessness, kids, because we work with kids too. Um, being in those spaces, they break you open. There's nothing you can do about it like because it's, it's different from your comfort. If you are distant from your emotions, it's the environment you've put yourself in. Mm. It's your environment. You have to change your environment. Because there are things in different spaces. I know my, even my own, like I, my softening has come from Skid Row and my, I've discovered my strength, but my, my softening has come from there because I realize how important it is to help people. And I think it's getting out of your comfort zone. And I think it's also taking account of your own privileges. Like we're given so much, even to have an apartment, have a place that's safe, mm -hmm. having something that's consistent in our life. Those are privileges. And I think that a lot of times we just expect them because that's our normal life. But we don't think about like, because we're so into like what we don't have and what we're getting next. We're not thinking about someone's praying for our position now. No, some people will never even imagine to have half what we have. So I think the mindfulness, the shift comes from our own disciplines and how we choose to steepen. And I think that once you recognize you are disconnected from your emotions, it is your job to rediscover them and to create an intimacy with your own feelings and love. And I think it, it goes down to what do you want in life? Because if you feel numb, then that's a question you need to ask yourself. Why are you existing? What is it for? You signed up for this, whatever that might be. So, so what do you want out of it? And do you want the wealth of life, which I, I've found it's connecting with people and to have that type of love and that type of space, it is the most powerful thing I've ever seen. Like it's humbling. Like it's dropped me to my knees because I'm like, to be able to experience this in life, I know how much people are dead inside. Mm -hmm. And it's, that hurts me too, to see people to get to that space. It's like to get to the space where you don't feel and your life looks so beautiful around you, that's agony in itself. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, there's a reason people are in mansions committing suicide because they're empty inside. And I think that it comes from meeting people. And that's the biggest gift that I feel like the homeless offer because they're so blessed just to have a conversation. You're seen in a different way. You're like, wow, I didn't even do much, but you just made it seem like it was something big. You know, I took Tony one day to have beer for his birthday and we were just having beer in the car, like talking about life. And I was literally carrying him back to his tent. And he's like an older man, old war vet. And I was carrying him back to his tent. And like the next day on Skid Row, everyone was like, 
you guys went out for beers? Like I heard for Tony's birthday, you would have thought I bought him bottle service in the club. <laughs> the way he made the conversation, like the girls came and took me out and it was my birthday. And it was, it was something so small, but it meant so much. It made me look at my own life, you know, my own privileges or, or the people in my life that are never going to have that type of story about me taking them out and buying them a round of drinks. It's such a blessing to have that. It's like you do so little, even giving them a shirt the next day they're wearing it. Like they want to show you like, and they feel confident to do such small gestures and how it's magnified. There's a gift there. It makes you look at your own life. Like I need to not, not be appreciative. You know, we expect so much. And especially when you get a lot, you expect a lot, but to be able to think like this doesn't have to happen and this could go away, no matter who you are, it could go away. I think that that, um, having that mindset. And and even just with the Malibu fires, when that happened, people weren't homeless. They were just inconvenienced because people have the money to be able to, but even that discomfort to recognize like things can be taken from you so quickly, no matter what you do, nature can take from you. So it's like, I think that having that mindset and being intentional about that, I think it starts there. And I think it starts with our disciplines because in the day, like I do start my day naming all the things I'm so grateful for. And I'm not talking about like big things. I'm talking about small things like not being sick, like waking up well is like a huge one to me. Having friends and family to call, having being able to make plans because my life is consistent enough that it's probably not going to be rearranged like other people's lives that are living paycheck to paycheck that $200 can make them homeless. $500 can make them homeless. So it's like thinking about those moments, small micro gestures in our life of like things. It's never about the magnitude, the big things. I think the small things collective are how shifts happen, but you have to be mindful of that. You have to be intentional about it. It doesn't just happen. You don't just become those things. You have to to create disciplines within them. And I think that feeling, especially feeling, doing things that make you uncomfortable. There's a homeless man, like just bring a water bottle to someone random like that needs it. It's so hot in LA right now. Something that's small because it's not even about the water. It's about the thought and intention. Like I thought to take care of you in this moment, it is hot. Being that mindful. I think everything is a practice of mindfulness. You share another really beautiful story. Oh my God. There's so many stories that just like, uh, um, there was a moment that was really cool to me. Um, a lot of times when I ask, I ask a lot of questions to people who are homeless because I feel like their perspective is very different than mine. Um, just from what they've experienced. And we think about the things that we want, if we could have wishes and there's this woman named Tracy, I'd asked her if she could have anything, what would it be? And she said to me for someone to remember my birthday, it's been five years since I was wished a happy birthday. And she's like, I, I, I just want someone to be close enough that we have that moment. And so um, her birthday is June 20th. And I, this was like probably in March when it happened. But in, on June 20th, I showed up at her 10 at midnight with a candle and a cake. And I woke her up and she was crying. And we had this film that day. And that moment was so important to her. She ended up getting housing right after no but way. I felt like, yeah, I felt like it was, it was a shift she needed yes. because she didn't feel wow. that it's like, I can go into a box, but there's no one that's coming with me. I have no one to visit me. At least when I'm out here, I'll encounter strangers who are homeless too. Mm-hmm. So I think that when I look at the shift and something that simple, she just wanted to be acknowledged for her day. Like, and you never think about that. Like, damn, like imagine your birthday being homeless and it's supposed to be a special day because you're born in this day and this is what like society and culture has celebrated. Mm-hmm. And then no one has acknowledged you or said it or they're probably rude to you that day. And you just wanted that little bit of acknowledgement. But if you haven't had it, 
It's like, yeah, you want that. And I just think little moments like that and how small that was, I was able to solve that for her. Mm, Like that was not, she didn't ask for a mansion. She didn't ask for some foreign car. She didn't ask for, she just asked for someone to acknowledge her birthday and to have that type of exchange with someone again in life. And so that to me is those moments. It's like, how can you not be steepened or how can you not shift into what's important when those things are brought to you every day? And then you start to really get down to like, what is important? What matters? And every time I have so many stories about people who, I mean, just these moments, like everything changes. We Birthdays are big for us. Like after those moments, I we do birthday initiatives where we do bowling or we take people out to dinner. Mm-hmm. Like we acknowledge and celebrate everyone's birthday. And that's a big thing within our staff. It's like whoever you connect with on Skid Row, it's your job to remember their birthdays. Mm-hmm. It's your job to make sure that we, you know, throughout the year figure out like what are things that they need? What are things we can gift them with? We have to celebrate their day. And those moments, I mean, my programs have come from what they've shown me is important, what's needed, what changes things. And um, literally it's how all of our programs have, have become what they were outside of our food because they're showing me what's needed and how, what will help them. And I take it serious and I, I write programs towards it. So birthdays are important to us. And it just speaks to like the, it's so valuable to make someone feel worthy of that attention, of that thought, of that love, you know, and that could go so far. Like I'm sure she just felt, she then felt worthy to have a home. She then felt where, you know, there's, it's just this beautiful ripple effect that didn't really cost you anything, right? Like it actually probably gave you more than you could ever imagine, but Mm -hmm. it's to, it's to spread that, you know, I think would, what you are doing, but I, you know, for people to understand that it's all energy and like money is energy and you know, like just Mm -hmm. the energetics of it all where we're so focused on, well, time is money. And I really don't have time to do that because I'm working and I'll, you know, I'll donate a few bucks, but you know, it's, it's, it's so much bigger than that and so much more powerful than that. So I just love that story because it just, it proves. But it's the energy that we have too. It's like, I didn't start by feeding 10,000 people. I started by not turning anyone away. Mm. And I think that's the bigger thing is like, we are all given opportunities and windows. And I think that 90% of people miss the mark when a man opens the gas station door for you to, to like, hopefully you acknowledge them or just something like there's all these moments where someone's like, can I pump your gas? Or like homeless people try and they mm. do try to interact, but they're like thrown away. Like I remember one wow. time I had watched just someone, I was, I was at a grocery store. I wasn't even like interacting with anyone, but a a woman had dropped like her money and the homeless guy was trying to tell her and she was like, no, get away from me. But it was like the moment it was like, he was just trying to tell her like, manly do the right thing. It's like, you don't even have money. You're trying to make sure. And then she's going to treat you like you're a threat, you know, in that moment, because of these preconceived notions, it's like, we don't think about how much damage that does. And then like those small moments, because they do try and interact with us. That's the thing. Some people get to the point where they give up but they try. That's why there'll be people sitting outside of Russia hoping like maybe someone will buy me food. It's like, that's so much better than someone stealing or doing something else. It's like, they're just hoping someone's gracious enough. 
I and I and I see that a lot. A lot of times, like when I'm outside of Skid Row and I'm just back into like my second side of my life, and I'm just out and I'm having to watch how other people interact with the homeless, and that's a hard part for me to see because it's like when I'm not with my my group of people and we know how to just hold space and be there to see the amount of trauma that's brought to them from privileged strangers. It's difficult because I, I one time I was downtown like. I, close to the alley, the garment district. And there's like a McDonald's there that everyone goes to the bathroom. Like it's been there for years. There was a man, huge wound in his head, like like bad, like it was really bad. He was like smiling, but he was like, you tell he was in pain. And he was opening the door for every person that was going into McDonald's. And no one was acknowledging him. And I remember going in, I just went in there to go use the restroom and I come out and I look at him and I mean, it, the line's out the door because it's like the only little McDonald's in that area and people are mad. Their orders aren't right. Like they're attitude, like, it's just like, t- like for me, it's like a lot of energy to deal with because it's like really negative. And I'm just like, you guys are going to eat and the man that's starving is smiling outside of the store. Like for me to see that juxtaposed position in my life, to like be able to be aware enough to see those things. And I sat with him and I asked him like, have you eaten today? And he's like, his response was no, but hopefully I will. And it was like, when he said that, it was just like, he, it's like you guys, every single person I walked by, like this man is hungry and it's obvious Mm -hmm. and no one thought to get him something. I mean, McDonald's is terrible (laughs) food wise. Mm -hmm. Like I would never, but just the idea of like, you didn't even think to get him something or like, but just being mindful enough that your order being wrong was more important than a starving man on the street that's smiling at you, hoping for you to acknowledge him. Like, that's just such a crazy thing to see. And I see that every day. Like, that's just the lens that I I view from. But to be able to see universal lessons all day long and to see people fail them, it's like, that was a moment to encounter love. Like, what if that's an angel there sitting on the ground? And he was because his response and how he was. And I, I got, you know, I got him food. I did all those things, but it's like, but I can't be in every moment, in every pocket. Mm-hmm. So it's so important that we do our part. I can't fix everything. And I don't want to by any means. I want us all to be aware enough to do our part. And those moments are so small, but we have windows that we miss all the time. And I think that's the thing. I don't miss the windows. I see them. They're clear as day where it's like, this person is coming to me. Every time I don't say no to people, I give them whatever I have. If I have money, it's money. If I have food, food. Someone's clearly on drugs. I offer them food first. It's like, but food doesn't solve everything. Like sometimes they do need money to get whatever. It could be band-aids. I've had older people that are like, I I do need my prescription. I don't have the copay or whatever it is. It's just like, we need to give all those things. But I never... I never let someone leave without giving them something. I think that's the biggest thing is like seeing a need and you can meet it and it's not that difficult. Mm. Even if it's, I'm going into grocery stores or anything, I can grab you while I'm in here. Being that mindful, that's community too. Just showing like, I know you need something. You know how many kids, like I had a young guy just recently, he just sells candy. I'm pretty sure you guys have seen that. Like the, the boys that sell candy, a lot of those kids are homeless. And there's couch surfing. So they'll try and buy candy and sell it. They'll never tell you. They'll say it's basketball. They'll say it's all yeah. these things. Those are homeless kids that don't have anything. So it's like, even with them, I won't buy candy because I'm like, I'll probably eat it. I need to not buy it. <laughs> so I won't buy it. But I always ask them, what are you, what are you, what are you trying to buy right now? What do you need? Like that's, I go right into that conversation. I'm like, boo, I can't afford to eat any more candy. <laughs> like I need to, but I talk to them. And even with like the kid, like I finally got it out of him because he's like close to my grocery store. And he was like, I don't have money for food. And I'm just, and, but he looked at me and he's like 16, 17. He's like, and I'm looking and he's like, don't feel bad for me. It's going to be okay. Like, like he was trying to like uh, not show these homeless. Totally. And then I was like, 
I don't feel bad. And I told him, I was like, I don't feel bad for you because you're too, you're strong. You're stronger than me. I, you're, you're equipped for war, but I want to feed you before you go. And it was that moment. I go into the grocery store, I grab him some food and he just like rips it open and just like mm-hmm. tears it up because he was just literally trying to sell candy to get mm-hmm. food. And it was like those moments, a lot of times we don't see them. Like we shun kids away when they do that. It's like, I would rather that because I had a kid that spent two years in jail for stealing a can of peaches from a 99 cent store. He was locked up. Come on. 17, child as an adult. What? Child as an adult. And so I think about those moments, like these kids aren't even stealing, they're trying. And then adults are like, it's not about the candy. Mm-hmm. It's about, they don't have something. So let's help them. Let's support them. And it doesn't hurt to give them 20 bucks. They get to be done for the day. Like they're just trying to make money to eat every day. And I don't think people see that. And those are the moments. It's like, those are all the windows that you said, I'm eating and I'm too busy when a kid comes up to you. Happens a lot. I know when I, there's a lot of places I go. I don't know why I track every single one of those kids that are selling candy, but I always tell them, I'm like, I'll give you money. I'm going to give you food. And I don't want your candy because you can make more money on it later. But just being able to help in that way, it's like, that's important. Those are windows that we miss. And those are the things I think we need to be more mindful of in our daily walks, not just donating to charity, which I, I mean, Lunch on Me wouldn't exist if we didn't have people that were supporting us, but also the windows and moments where we can do things directly, directly is so important. Like don't miss those marks. It's never about what it is. I've had that happen. I mean, me selling, like I sell, we sell lemonades for our, um, one of our fundraisers. We do like lemonade stands. And I think all the time, like if someone's like, well, I'm not in the mood for lemonade. It's like, boo, it's not about the lemonade. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like none of this, it's not about the candy. It's about supporting in a moment that you have an opportunity to support and do it with honor. Like, wow, to even have the means to be on the other end is the honor because you're not begging. You don't have your hand out. And it's like they need, they wouldn't be doing that if they were given the resources they needed. Wow. Thank you. I also just want to like, I'm having a, not a hard time, but I'm just thinking back. Like we both have lived in New York. We now live here in LA both places have a substantial homeless population and just, you know, this is not about beating myself up for all the opportunities that I miss, but it just is something to reflect on, you know, and, and being willing to not settle into that place anymore. That is like, so surface and comfortable. Like I, I feel, I'm feeling a little bit of shame which it's not about me, but you know what I mean? It's just that feeling of, but I, it it feels good. Like it feels good to kind of see, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I think a lot of us are just going around blindly and worried about ourselves. And, and I think especially being in cities, you're like in this, in this flow, like you're going to work, you're on your way to work. Oh, there's probably going to be some kids that hop on the subway and they try to sell candy and you're going to like look at your phone and ignore it. You know, it's just mm-hmm. like this really unfulfilling like vibe through life. Yeah. And so I'm just so glad you, you spoke to that and like what that looks like and how human it is. You know, it's not about, yeah, it's just so human. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. And that's the thing too. It's like, we all have those moments because we don't know till we know, mm. but it's like, from there, it's like we don't beat ourselves up for what we didn't know. Right, right. But we move forward and work in a way where it's like we don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. It's like when you're aware, then that's when you're responsible in a different way. And you're responsible to show other people that too, because it's never about those things. It's always about those needs. It's always about being able to help. 
And sometimes it's also that conversation. It's like a lot of the kids, when you think about on the trains and when they need stuff, nine times 10, they don't even have parents. So just having like some type of mentor to show them the way and then even encouraging them. Like I tell them all the time, I'm like, you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> like I'm like, you have something that 90% of people don't have. I was like, you need to know that. Like you're not afraid to ask. You're not afraid to be rejected. And also like, breathing life into them. Yes. I always tell them, I'm like, this is huge. I was like, this is important. And I, and I encourage them, keep doing this. Because you never want them to get to the point of stealing or things that happen because the law is unforgiving to kids that are without. But encouraging that, that keep going, you know, keep doing this. And it can turn into a business. Is there something else you want to sell? Is there something, like I like to encourage the kids because they are entrepreneurs. If you think about it, I feel like they're really slept on. Like they're the ones that are not afraid to ask for things and they're going to make it happen. And they're, they have found ways to survive. No one will hire them. So they created their own jobs. Like they're innovative They're It's like, I look at, at the whole. And I like to, when those kids do come up to me, I always acknowledge them. I always talk to them and I always like encourage them to keep going. And I think also giving them money and it does, it makes them excited to that someone sees them because they don't get that a lot. A lot of people don't see that part. They don't see what it took them to get there. And I think that a lot of times, like that's a part of the love. Like I acknowledge that. I acknowledge how hard they're working. I acknowledge what they're trying to do. And like I even had a kid one day like tell me, I'd ask him, I was like, what are you doing? Because I know you're not playing basketball right now. And he's like laughing. And he was like, I only have one pair of shoes. I need another pair of shoes for school. He's like, so I'm selling these candy. He's like, told me the truth. And it was like, okay. And I talked to him about it. And I was like, like, how far are you? And he like pulls out his money in his pocket, like talking about like, basically he was just trying to get the money for his shoes. But those type of moments where it's like, maybe you can be the person that goes with him to grab shoes. You know, maybe you can order them right there if he has an address or something, creating even that type of community where it does take a village. And when kids are displaced, I think it's our responsibility to create some type of mentorship towards kids. Like there's no reason that we can't, I have a ton of kids. Like all the time at the bodega, like help us. Like I have so many kids that I just take on because I think it's our responsibility to give them nurturance. I take on a lot of kids that don't have moms because I like to bring them that part of their their upbringing, the nurturance that they don't get. I, I get to like work with a lot of single dads, which is really cool because no one sees that side. But even being able to say like, okay, we're going to come in as a group of women and help with that nurturance, showing the kids the way. I think it really is a community base. And no matter how many kids you already have, it's always thinking that if we all just like made it our responsibility to, to look after two other kids within our communities, like think about what that changes, just the dynamic just on a, a people level, a community level, us being mindful enough to say, I'm going to make sure at least two kids, most of us can do that. Most of us can help in that way. And I think that that's important and that would shift a lot of things. And it's helped us bring a lot of opportunities to kids. It's helped us with them getting jobs and being on their own, helping them like transition into that too. So that's important to me. And I always want to talk about the kids first, because if we can stop it there, a lot of this homelessness would go way you talk about shout out some of the organizations in LA that our LA girls can be a part of or learn from and then from a national level um I so I've worked with over 100 nonprofits, and I can't um recommend 90 of them and that's the truth most of them are government funded so on and that's the truth I've worked with so many and I would definitely say our goal is just to expand in different types of chapters, different types of ways so that we can 
Like we're just focused on being an organization that are for the people, by the people, because once government gets involved, it's dictated in a different way. We've purposely not taken money from government grants because our entire program would be turned upside down. Wow. So I can't say because a lot of people aren't going to do that. A lot of people are are not going to say no to a lot of money. And for me, it's not about the money. The money couldn't have gotten me this far. And that's the truth. Um, It's all energetic work and impact and um, morals. So I can't, and I've been trying. I've been trying so hard to suggest organizations and I've severed ties with every single one I've worked with. All of the stuff we do now is standalone. We don't partner with anyone and I've been doing it for four years and I've done so many partnerships. I no longer partner. I don't partner with nonprofits. I partner with for-profits and actual like corporations. Now I'm, I'm working specifically in that way to create more consciousness in corporations to be more giving um, because the nonprofit world is definitely monopolized in a way that it's important grassroots where it's still about people and community. And most of our work, we have over 1,200 volunteers in LA. 90% of our work is done through volunteers, through our training and our team. It's four of us here, three in LA, in New York, four in LA, three in New York. So our team, we have a small team, seven of us, and we facilitate three chapters because it's, I mean, the numbers are showing how good the nonprofits are doing. The numbers show billions of dollars are put into it and it's worse every year. There's a lot of corruption involved. And so I can't, like I've wanted to, I just did a talk this week and I was like, I would love to, and please believe I've reached out to so many organizations because I'm like, I wanted this, but I just realized that's not the space for us. Our space is to, to work with corporations to help fund us so that we can just keep doing the actual work on a grassroots level where government is not affiliated. Because nothing's going to come from government. It hasn't in 300 years. Mm-hmm. In addition to volunteering for Lunch on Me, how can people help Lunch on Me? So people pledge monthly. We okay. ask for as little as $10 a month. People can give whatever they want, but okay. we okay. just ask for 10 because we just feel like that's two coffees. I measure everything in coffee. Yeah. Um, we ask for monthly pledges. Um, that's helped us with our space. Great. And we have an Amazon list of anything that we need. So it's like cups, forks. We distribute 10,000 meals a month. So we buy like eco-friendly, biodegradable plates. All that stuff is twice as expensive is like the bad stuff. So we post. So if anyone wants to buy things for us, if they're like, you know what, I'll buy their plates for the month. They can do that on our website. It shows. We also sell merch. Um, If people want shirts, hats, 100% of the proceeds go to our programs. So those are different ways that people can help. If you're a chef and you want to come out and help us, come out. If you want to host an event and a percent of the proceeds go to us, you can reach out to us. But we're really focused on just the community finding their way of helping and what's best for them. So the biggest thing for us we've maximized is dealing with people in their reign, in their realm because that's made such a big difference. It's like when you have a comedian that can't necessarily come out, but they can host uh, a late night and give us a percentage of their proceeds. Those ways, those they work as well. Because I think it's food, time, talent, and money. I think all those things together um, help. And even if it's food, when it when it's certain holidays, like we post a whole list of our food and people can buy different things if they want to buy and pounds of flour, like whatever they want to, however they want to contribute, we make it where it's really community, where people can go back to their family and say like, what do you guys want to get out of the things? And we work with everyone in that way. So it's really community. Like I feel like if everyone does their part, we have a feast. And that's how it's been able to like really leverage. And of course we work with Whole Foods. Whole Foods is one of our biggest supporters and um, we host events. We work with Equinox. 
even though they've been dealing with a lot of um, crazy uh, publicity, they've been helping us by hosting classes and 100% of the proceeds go to us for their classes. So it's been really, really cool to work with, again, corporations where we're leveraging in that way so that we can still keep the control of how our programs are run because I want, I'm going to keep birthday programs. Like they're important to me. You know, it's like, I've asked the government, they'll say to remove art from our program. You know what I mean? It's just, it's, I, that doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. So that's why we've done it the way we've done it. It's beautiful. Thank you. So in the Facebook group, you guys will get the Amazon shopping link. We'll, we'll give it to all our girls. Um, we'll share that on social so you can, guys can find that on our Instagram today. We'll have it in our static post. And then, you know, for the people that donate for the monthly, mm-hmm. whatever it is, you know, we can match everyone. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. thank you. And it's yeah, um, it's CrowdRise. So you'll see CrowdRise. there's different things. Like we have different initiatives because yeah. we want to get a food truck. Like there's all these different things they could help. We have our New York chapter. So if people are in New York and yeah. they want to, help fund the New York chapter. There's a, a link for all of those things. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Yeah. We'll give the guys every, every link. That was really beautiful. Thank, Thank you, you so much for sharing. Yeah. I'm thankful. All right. Thanks for listening. We love you. We love you. We'll see you in the next one. Bye. 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 Thanks so much for listening. Thank you to Lorea. If you want to learn more about the incredible work she's doing and how you can get involved, go to lunchonme.com. Org. That's lunchonme.org. Thank you all so much for listening. It means the world to both Krista and me, and we can't wait to see you on the road. We are officially in New York City right now, and we have our live show on Wednesday, October 3rd. Just a reminder, it is at Chelsea Music Hall. So that was a switch in location from the original venue because we needed more space because a lot of you are coming. So we cannot wait to see you. If you bought tickets to the original location. Those were refunded and you have to buy new tickets. So that's on our website, almost30podcast.com slash tour. Go to the NYC live show link and you can purchase your tickets there. We have two other events as well. October 4th with uh, Aaron Claire and Stuart Pierce on October 9th. It's going to be an incredible time in New York City and I can't wait to see you. We can't wait to see you. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.